Dr. Tabia Lee waited and worked for years to land her dream role as the director of the Office of Equity, Social Justice, and Multicultural Education at De Anza Community College. Almost immediately, Lee came under scrutiny from her peers and leadership for daring to ask questions about anti-racism policies and language. Dr. Lee believes exposure to diversity of thought is part of a multicultural education and was denied tenure and eventually fired for daring to express those beliefs. One colleague going so far as to accuse Lee of whitesplaining. Not only am I fond of Lee because she is a fellow founding member of FBT, I admire and respect her because she embodies courage and is an example of what the cost can be when one stands up for what is right. We need more people like her in my opinion. So it is my honor and privilege to welcome Dr. Tavia Lee to the show. And remember, there is no such thing as the Black perspective, just Black people with perspectives. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast. Lee, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been so fun to kick off this podcast in the Free Black Thought Podcast, our first series, which is heavy on the Free Black Thought founding members. You're a little bit of a celebrity amongst us right now, and not for great reasons necessarily, but we'll get into that. But it's going to be super fascinating to kind of talk through your journey because the last bit of it here as it relates to FBT, Free Black Thought has been in the public eye. But I want to, before we kind of get into your celebrity that's happening right now, let's start back at the very beginning and paint a picture for how Tealy came to be, how you came to be the person that you are today, because I know you've been through a bit of a ideological evolution yourself. So let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? How did you grow up? What was your childhood like? Yes. So um, I grew up in, I'm a California native, uh, born and raised in California. Haven't stayed here my whole life though, Um, but mostly in the Central Valley, uh, California, Um, so I was born in Stockton, California, and I grew up in Lodi, California. Um, they're both small towns in the Central Valley region of California. And, um, I spent a lot of time during my early childhood, uh, doing a lot of reading. Uh, people always ask me, what did you like to do when you were a kid? And I I always tell them reading. Um, I, I was just a voracious reader. Um, someone who anything you would put in my hands, I would read. I was uh, reading before walking. <laughs> um, and so my parents always had to, you know, keep me a lot of materials around uh, because that was just literally my favorite uh, thing to do as as a child. Um, that kind of stayed with me, that foundation of like just a love of reading, reading a wide variety of things uh, throughout my early childhood. Um, I was someone who was in uh, gifted and talented programs uh, for most of my elementary schooling. Um, And this was during a time they really didn't know what to do with us, or at least that's what I assume, because we spent a lot of time, um, you know, playing Oregon Trail, um, (laughs) you know, just basically kind of um, tending to ourselves, uh, being utilized as peer tutors. Um, and so like from the very beginning in my elementary schooling, um, I was always someone who was put in like a little bit of a teacher assistant role, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, and it was something that I enjoyed doing, you know, being the teacher's helper, um, (laughs) and, and experiencing that. Um, and at the same time, I, I, um, was also connected to my local community college, so um, in Stockton, there's a um, community college called San Joaquin Delta Community College. 
And um, starting in middle school, I started taking classes there. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I was just um, enjoying that, um, enjoying the rigor, the academic rigor that I encountered there. Um, And I actually ended up taking so many classes at Delta that I graduated two years early from high school. Um, And I had to get like all these special permissions. Um, Now it's common. Like there's, they they call them dual enrollment students. Mm -hmm. But at that time, I I literally had to get the permission of my parents, uh, the counselor, the principal of my school and Delta College had to allow me in. Um, And I was just so thankful for that because that experience really helped shape who I have later become, you know, in the years as a scholar. Um, it taught me about how to write effectively, um, how to do close readings, how to think critically about the things I read. And this was something that wasn't happening in my high school experience. Mm. So I okay. got things that actually helped me for once. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that was really enriching. And I, I really enjoyed that. Um, and I don't know how, how, how much more you wanted me to talk about. <laughs> so did you know, it's because of you had been kind of put into these teacher roles and like educate, you loved academia. Did you, so you, did you know at that young age, like this is where my future is. I'm going to stay in this world. You know, um, at that time, my parents were really, they wanted me to go into law and the legal field. Um, and that was kind of the, uh, track that I was on for most of my schooling. Um, even when I first started out with like, with my bachelor, uh, under, um, undergraduate degree, um, I was kind of pointed that way. But as I started to to do things more and interact more, you know, with the with the um, with academia and so forth, uh, it just became a natural that I would circle back and and be into teaching. Um, during my undergrad studies, I um, actually served as a, a teaching assistant in a kindergarten classroom, mm. and I just couldn't believe, you, you know, when you think of kindergarten, you think, oh, it's fun, it's just you know, like they're just playing games. Um, I got to see it from the backside of a mentor that I had, um, and she, the amount of planning that went into that, um, the crafting, uh, what would look like fun and games, she spent like hours structuring that and getting it ready. And so I admired that a lot because when I was coming in, you know, I'm like, oh, I want to do that. That would be fun when I was asked to do it. I said, that'll just be fun. I'll play with kids sometime, you know, it's cool. Like it won't be intensive. But that was intense from the bat from 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 how she was doing it, and she I happened to just be placed with someone who was a very awesome teacher. So when I saw that and the impact she was having on the lives of the students, you know, and and then me, you know, putting out the snacks, that was kind of my role as the assistant. <laughs> <laughs> but I admired that so much. I said, "This is what I want to do." I said, "I don't know if I'm going to do kindergarten because kindergarten was a lot." <laughs> Um, it was more than I ever imagined it could be. Uh, so I'm like, I think I probably want to do like, you know, um, middle school. And that's actually what I ended up doing, uh, middle school. Um, so after I got my bachelor's, I ended up going to L.A. Um, and I joined uh, Los Angeles Unified School District. And so and your, bachelor's, your bachelor's was in education? No, it was in uh, sociology. Oh, OK. Yes. Um, so when I started my bachelor's, so, yeah, there's a little bit of story back there, too. When I started my bachelor's, um, I actually went to Bryn Mawr College, uh, which is in Pennsylvania. A lot of people on West Coast haven't heard of it, but it's an all-women's college in Pennsylvania, um, one of the seven sister colleges. Um, and that's where I started. And I, I was there for about two and a half years. Um, and then I ended up transferring and coming back and going to UC Davis mm. uh, to finish up. 
And so I finished up my bachelor's at UC Davis. Uh, that was in uh, sociology uh, with an emphasis on social deviance. And that's where I was doing my um, you know, volunteer work in, in the kindergarten classroom at that time when I was in, uh, at UC Davis. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's just something that kind of evolved um, and that I was you know, really excited about. And after I finished my bachelor's, I ended up um, going, as I mentioned, joining LAUSD, moving to LA, um, and I was in their uh, beginning teacher support program. Um, so I went through that, um, got my credentials, um, also got my master's while I was teaching in LA. So I was teaching in um, East Los Angeles public middle schools uh, and gifted English language learners, uh, social studies, English, uh, and I also developed a civics program uh, while I was there. Um, as well. And I was just uh, thankful to, to have that experience. Um, and my master's thesis was actually on um, civic competency and civic education. Uh, so those are all just things I've, I've been committed to for a long time um, in helping you know students and communities to get more connected with their um, civic engagement and civic knowledge, because I think that that's something that's that's so key. It's just something I've always been connected into as well. Um, being aware of who are your representatives, um, right. who, who, what are your responsibilities, rights, uh, and duties as a, a citizen, and um, what does that mean for all of us, you know, in, in the world? And these are things that even at that time in the early 90s um, were fledgling. Uh, we, we had seen a push of civic education out of the schools um, at that time. So me reviving a, a program and, and actually bringing a program in was like groundbreaking work, which I didn't think it was anything weird I was doing or unusual. Yeah. But at the time, it was like they, they had, that had been pushed out. There was this emphasis on English and math and that's it, you know, the back to the basics. And I'm like, well, this is a basic, you know, to me, civic civic education. So, yeah. So yeah, so that was a great experience. Um, we, the kids that I worked with were just amazing. We did like voter registration drives in our community. Um, we were doing things like community panels and uh, just great, great works. Um, and I often tell people that, you know, my middle school students were a lot more informed and insightful than many of the adults. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and that was just amazing to me, you know, uh, the insights they would come up with, the topics they wanted to explore. Um, and it, it, it just takes someone taking the initiative, an educator, right, and saying this is important. And you'd be amazed at what students uh, come up with and can do. <laughs> yeah. And, and so during this time, even earlier when you were at community college and you graduated early and then you, you transitioned to getting your bachelor's and then a teacher, what what was sort of the racial diversity environment that you were in? Did you experience racism? Were you thinking about diversity and that kind of thing? Or did that come later? Oh, no, this is something. Um, so in terms of like humans and how we interact with each other, um, this is something I've been interested in my whole life, Connie, like literally. Um, so the rosy part is that I was a teacher's assistant and so forth. Um, but at the same time that that was happening in my elementary schooling, um, I was also teased and bullied uh, mm -hmm. quite a bit in my elementary school experience. Um, and that's really what struck for me a note uh, that, you know, as a teacher, there's a responsibility for that teacher to um, create an environment where everyone feels welcome and included and where no one's teased and bullied. 
Um, what happened with me in my case, I would, you know, say, hey, this is happening. And, you know, my parents are very strong minded people. So they would just be like, you know what? Everybody gets teased. Like, this is just normal. Like, you know, toughen up kind of thing. That was yeah. kind of their response. They, I don't think they realized the extent to which I was mm. getting teased. Um, and then I would report to the teachers and say, you know, that person just called me a name or they're pushing me, you know, th th things got physical uh, in terms of my bullying that I experienced. And the teachers would even say like, ah, it's, it's nothing. You're, you're fine. You're okay. So everyone was just giving me this kind of toughen up, yeah. kind of attitude, which is different than today. Um, I, 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 just, I always think back, I'm like, wow, if I was going to school today, like I would be elevated. I would, they would be making sure I'm seen. Um, the micro and macro quote aggressions will be addressed efficiently, you know? Um, but in a way I'm glad that I had this experience I had because I mm -hmm. had to dig deeper. Like everyone around me was kind of like, just toughen up, you know, you're all right. Uh, so I literally had to form into myself a strength. Um, I didn't start, you know, wallowing like, oh, I, they're just victimizing me and I'm marginalized. Like that wasn't the, the perception I took. I took the perception of I'm going to keep speaking. I'm going to keep telling them, um, you know, so I guess I'm a little bit unique in that way um, because I, w I was not a victim. No one around me told me I was a victim. Yeah. Um, and then I had to just within myself develop this uh, way of interacting that was like, you know, no, I'm not I'm not what you're saying. Um, and, and that's not true. And I just had to keep saying that, you know, um, until I believed it and they believed it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that, that was like an early cornerstone of my personality. But what I saw from that was how mean, uh, humans can be to one mm -hmm. another. Mm -hmm. Um, and it made me very, um, vigilant about that, um, in terms of when I became a teacher, how I structured my environment, you know, if a student ever brought a concern to me. Um, we addressed it as a learning community. Um, I really, this is where this focus on dialogue came up for me um, early on, because I, I felt that, you know, if people would just talk to each other and listen to each other, you know, things would be different. Um, and so as I became, you know, grew into myself as a teacher, I had this commitment to, to just never uh, being a, a bystander and, and, and not teaching my students to just passively observe things like teasing or bullying. Um, if someone's different, you know, we don't need to uh, ostracize them or point at them or make fun of them. Maybe we can learn something from each other. Um, so, and this is where this commitment to like the underdog uh, came mm -hmm. from, the cast out, because that was me. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I said, you know, no, that's, I, I just had this commitment to elevating uh, people on the margins, people who were different, um, and not just elevating, but including um, and making sure that they felt safe to be their most authentic selves in, in any environment. Um, so that's where you see that strain coming into my teaching. Um, and, and it's, I work from a humanistic perspective. Uh, so how do we recognize the humanity in every single person? And how do we not dehumanize one another? Um, so that's, that's kind of like, were my personal experience mixed in with, with my teaching philosophy, really. Were you still um, kind of cast out when you went to college or was it there where you kind of find your home, your people, so to speak? Um, yeah, you know, elementary school, I, I, I had friends and so forth, but that's when I started getting involved in like um, school governance and so forth. So this is where that civic education element comes in um, and making positive changes that way. Um, running for, you know, like school president, vice president, and, yeah. you know, and um, 
And things shift when you get to like uh, high school, middle school. So elementary school was just, oh, you know, um, I'm not so great. But middle school and high school, it was different. It's like and, okay. and some of the same people who were like teasing me in elementary school were like wanting to be my friend in, mm-hmm. in middle school. So, you know, that's where I was learning that practice um, of non-attachment, of uh, letting go of a beginner's mind. All of those things were things I was exploring as a person. And that's why some of the same people who literally tormented me, I later became friends with. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've, my whole life, that's been a thing too. Um, adversity, working with it and through it. Um, I grew up, as I mentioned, in Lodi. So I, I had actual experience with knowing people who were white nationalists. Um, and actual white supremacists. Um, and um, even, you know, in some of my, uh, in some of the cases, uh, getting to know people who held those as beliefs. Uh, that's why when I see people like Daryl Davis, I admire him so much. He did it on a large scale. I was just like a person having a friend who like listened to punk rock music who I was able to talk to, right? And, and, and form a friendship um, and get them off a fence of being uh, a, an extreme white nationalist, like a one-to-one kind of impact was what I have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And for those who don't may not know, Daryl Davis is a black man who kind of infiltrated the Klan and then brought people out of it. So very mm-hmm. inspirational story. If you've never heard of Daryl Davis, just go ahead and Google him. Yes, yeah. And when I see that, and when I saw that um, Later on, when I was looking at DEI programs to bring to one of the colleges that I worked at, I, that's how I came across his work. And I was like, that is what we need to be doing right now. Like, and it just reminded me of my little experiences that I had as a, you know, individual and on an individual impact, never like, you know, transforming a whole organization or anything like that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's just kind of where this commitment comes from. Um, all the things that I've taught about and done. Um, have been things that I've taught about my whole life because of the commitment set that I have. And, and until very recently, I didn't think I was doing anything like necessarily um, different or groundbreaking or even, you know, um, anything like that until I saw the state of teaching in our California community colleges and, and what progressive ideologies uh, or so-called progressive ideologies have done there. So, so yeah, let's talk about that transition. You were a middle school teacher doing your thing. Um, and now, and then eventually you, you transition to more of the higher ed roles and not as an actual like professor or teacher. What, what, when did that change shift in your career start to happen? So after I completed my, uh, doctorate, um, I actually took some time away. Uh, a lot of people do gap years before their bachelor's or before their master's, but I did my gap year after completing my doctorate and it was a couple of years actually. Um, for the first time, I traveled outside of the U.S. I had been around the U.S., you know, traveling, but never outside. Um, and so I got to go to many of the places that I always had wanted to go. So as a middle school teacher, I was teaching um, in social studies, ancient civilizations. And, and that was also intentional. I've always just had this uh, affinity or fascination with ancient worlds and ancient civilizations and the beginnings of humanity. Um, so I actually... Um, went to Egypt for the first time. And I spent like six months in Egypt. Um, I went to Malta and and Amsterdam and like all these other places, historical places, um, rich with history that I had always just read about. And I would tell my students like, one day I'm going to go, you know, be going to these places, go to the pyramids and all of this. And I actually got a chance to do that um, and travel outside the U.S. And then I did some volunteer teaching 
um, as well in the uh, post-Soviet Republic of Georgia. Um, yes, which was an amazing experience. I actually stayed with the host family, got to really know about the Georgian culture in their um, the, the struggle for sovereignty and um, their commitment to never being a Soviet nation again. Um, and so that was just uh, a transformative as well. Um, and at that same time, I had launched an educational consultancy. So I was uh, presenting mostly uh, writing papers and collaborating with folks, um, presenting at like state, local, national, and international ed conferences. Um, and then I had a few clients here and there, but it wasn't so much like a client-based thing. It was more like a knowledge generator. Mm. Um, and then when I came back, I said, you know, this this is my time to to move my impact to just beyond my classroom and my district. Like I was having great positive impact on my district and the, the classroom, you know, my colleagues in that area, um, because I was serving as like a faculty uh, PD developer during that time as well. In addition to teaching, um, I was holding teacher education programs, developing them, implementing them, teaching people how to bring the civic um, program that I had developed into their classroom, uh, talking to people about uh, gifted education and neurodiversity and um, and all of those kinds of things and how we can best serve our students who are culturally and linguistically diverse. Like I was doing all that work as a teacher, but I wanted to make it a larger impact. So, you know, when you get your doctorate, you think, oh, I'm going to change the world, you know, and all this is going to open up. So I started to apply um, and I could show you, Connie, hundreds of apps. Uh, I mean, I just have yeah. a folder. I never called for an interview, you know, um, just, just kept pushing, pushing, applying, applying, applying. And what roles, what roles were you applying for? I, I wanted to be a professor, you know, um, that's, okay. you, know, you get your, I got my doctorate and I wanted to, perf that's why I got it. Like I said, I'm going to be a professor, you know, um, and you I weren't, you weren't, you weren't applying for like administrative roles. You wanted never, to, right. No, no, okay. no, not at, not at that point in my career uh, trajectory, not at any point so far. Uh, but I never close any door out. Uh, but I was looking at, you know, um, teacher educating, the same thing that I, you know, kind of been in uh, when I was even teaching in K through 12. Um, and how could I make an impact on other teachers in their pedagogy and their methodology? Um, and the only places <laughs> that would take me in uh, were private schools. Mm -hmm. um, and at this point, it was very interesting. When I, you know, you look back now and you say, oh, that's why. Um, so at that time, I was considered um, a quote, uh, I guess, radical social justice <laughs> proponent, um, you know, because I was focused on social justice, on uh, diversity, um, on equality for all people, on humanity and humanistic education. Um, and the only places that would hire me were the, the places that had longstanding, you know, um, centuries commitments to those topics. Uh, so it ended up being private Catholic universities. Um, the, the people who were doing the work long before, you know, now everyone's quote doing the work. <laughs> um, and so, but the problem with that, I could only ever land an adjunct position. So I went through many years of being an adjunct um, at a couple of um, uh, private Catholic universities in the Bay Area. Um, and also, um, you know, always chasing that promise that a full-time would come. So basically I was doing the work of a full-timer, but being compensated as a part-timer. Mm -hmm. um, and that after many years for me, uh, became problematic uh, because I just simply could not survive uh, right. with that kind of income and the effort I was putting into it. Um, and you have, a, you have a family. I don't know when 
when you started your family, but at some point you had a family as well, right? When did, when did they, where you weren't just worried about supporting yourself? Right. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, there's, a, I, I, I have a family um, and I have responsibilities, you know, personal commitments. Um, and so, you know, you literally, it, but even as a single person cannot survive yeah. um, as an adjunct. Um, and, and, and it's too, when you think about equity, what, to me, equity means fairness. Um, I take like the literal <laughs> dictionary definition before all this strange linguistic ma manipulation that's happened recently. Um, it wasn't equitable. It wasn't equitable for me to be doing literally all the work of a, of a, of a tenured professor or a tenure track professor, but to not be compensated for it mm -hmm. um, and to be leading programs and so forth. And, but yet called a part-time worker um, and, and to be treated as such, uh, not only in terms of how you're compensated, but in terms of the, um, the respect that you have in the environment and the collegiality that's extended to you. Um, it's like you're a second tier <laughs> of faculty. And to me, that was uh, uh, untenable. Um, so I started to say, I started to lean in more to my consultancy work and I kept applying, you know, to these outside organizations, um, attempting that tenure track. And it wasn't until the pandemic um, that actually um, some doors opened for me. And that was when I got my first um, tenure track position. And it was in a California community college setting. Uh, so I was serving as a faculty. It was a temporary position, though. So temporary mm -hmm. tenure track, full time um, instructional designer. And so in that role, I was, again, able to do all the things that I love to do, which is support faculty, uh, help them enrich their um, their pedagogy and their, um, you know, student interaction and community interaction. Uh, and this was really focused on course design. So this was during the pandemic, you know, when all the colleges shifted online, they opened up all these roles because it was like, suddenly they needed help. <laughs> How yeah. do we teach online, you know? Um, yeah. And for me, so... Uh, there's so many parts of my story, kind of I try to be succinct, but I had been teaching online since I was a teenager as well. <laughs> so, oh. so this wasn't new to me. And even my adjunct positions that I had held were all remote online positions before the pandemic. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. So these, this is a world that I had been in and, you know, worked in and refined my approach personally in over many years um, and developed many tools to help other teachers to, you know, support um, before the pandemic, there was a lot of exploration of like hybrid teaching. People were starting to dip their toes in the online teaching and stuff. Um, and so I was doing like one-to-one -one mentorships of people in that terms. And in my faculty roles, uh, my adjunct faculty roles, I was actually doing some instructional design work, doing curriculum design work as well and support with teachers. So did you, did you care at all that this opportunity presented itself in the community college setting? Or were you like, as long as I'm higher ed, that's fine? You know what's weird about this? Okay, so the whole time I was applying, um, I was always applying to like, um, so there's categories of higher ed. So there's like research one universities, you know, like that's where a lot of mm. research is. So I was, uh, part of it was my ignorance around like when you first come out um, of, you know, getting your doctorate, rarely, unless you have some personal connection, are you going to get a research one, you know, mm, position, okay. unless you've done like, I hadn't really done like uh, transformative research, you know, or published a lot. So I was applying, I was applying to places that weren't um, matches. And that's why for so many years, I have this big folder. Um, but, but when the opportunity, I don't know why I never had looked to community college 
before then. And even while I was in my struggle with the adjunct work and stuff, I hadn't looked. Um, this job that came up, the temporary tenure track one, the first one that I had um, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, it popped up and I was like, hey, that's what I'm doing now. You know, I'm doing instructional design, but I'm part time. I'm doing it for the whole institution. So I had background of whole institution support. Um, and so, and I said, but this is full-time tenure track. And I just applied. Um, and I said, okay, this is great because as I mentioned, I was an early community college student, dual enrollment right. student. Yeah. And so this was like things coming full circle to me. And it was like a, a door open for me, I guess, in my mind, it even, you know, I was like, why have I not been applying to community college? Like, mm -hmm. and I'm like, you know, this is a way to to give back, to be teaching. Um, and, and they have started to innovate and create spaces for teacher support um, because of the pandemic, you know, conditions they had to respond to. And so I really just enjoyed that so much. Um, I was like, this is my place, you know, like when I when I came into that, I said, this is where I need to be, not a research one or, you know, a, um, a high prestige, you know, that's what everyone wants to do out, out the gate. But I'm like, this is more of what I'm aligned with, public community service, being a public servant, um, having an impact on students who are coming, you know, from K through 12 and other alternative venues. Um, because, you know, community college is a space where you have a lot of adult learners. Some are coming back to, you know, school. Some never graduated from uh, high school. They got their, you know, GED and now they're exploring other options. Like this is a space for people who are different. Yeah. <laughs> and people who are like me. And so I'm like, this is, this is perfect. So I started to literally filter all of my job app searches at that point to community college, mm. um, when that when that position ended, uh, so it was it ended up not being funded uh, for to go on for multiple years, um, and so when that one ended, I was like, no, that was I had had my taste of like the world, the community, the collegiality, just like the welcomingness of everyone, um, and and feeling like I was part of a learning community, and so I started looking, and I saw this position at uh, the Anza College for a faculty director, and I said, okay, here here we go, like this is perfect because. I'm not an administrator. I'm a teacher. I, I, my doctorate's in educational leadership and administration, but I've always worked at it through a lens of teacher leadership. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I'm like, this is my opportunity again, to be a teacher leader, a fellow colleague, a co-learner, um, and to support faculty. And so I just, you know, applied to that position. Um, it was a late running position. So, um, but it was very rigorous. I went through so many panel interviews, teacher demonstrations. I mean, that yeah. was a rigorous process. And, uh, and somehow, you know, they, they, I made it through, they selected me and it was like the, for me, Connie, that position. So I've been, this is many decades of teaching now. Um, this was the position that I said, you know, the, the charge was to lead an institution wide transformation uh, around equity, social justice, and multicultural education. So to me, someone who had been doing that kind of work and leading teachers through transformations and institutions up until that point, I said, this is going to take, you know, probably through my retirement yeah. for me to lay the groundwork, right, to get to know the people, to learn, <laughs> you know, the context. It's going to take many years, any kind of transformative work. So I was when I took this position, I actually took a pay cut, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and, and I was like, that's okay. You know, and it was kind of like, I had to start at ground zero again. Like I was a rookie again, because yeah. I'm starting a tenure review process, you know, 
Um, I had already gone through like multiple processes and evaluations and become a double national board certified teacher. So like, but it was like, I was starting at ground zero again. I had to start at the bottom, you know, you're a first year probationary kind of thing. Yeah. (laughs) And, and that was worth that sacrifice of a pay cut starting again, uh, because I knew to myself, I said, this is where I'll be retiring out from. And hopefully I'll have something to show for all my years, you know, of work. I'll leave a positive impact here um, that, you know, as a teacher, you think of like, what what will your legacy be? What will people remember you as an educator for? Um, and when you're an educator that's involved with systems change, you really want that to be something that's really going to serve the community well. And so that's what my intention was uh, coming in and the way things um, turned out has been truly uh, heartbreaking for me. Um, and, and just truly unanticipated, but what it, but what I've learned, because you learn something from everything. Um, so what I've learned is, uh, the state of our community college education in California, because the things I experienced are, are not unique. Um, you know, when you're going through something, you think like, oh, I'm the only person this is happening to. Well, since I started talking to people and speaking out about what's happened, I've learned so much uh, about the state of things. Um, and about what other people are experiencing. And I, I, I always thought as I was going through this at De Anza College in particular for the last couple of years, I said, you know, if I was just tenured, you know, this wouldn't be happening. You know, it, it, this is an odd position to try to lead transformation under a tenure track, you know, where people can literally cancel you for ideological reasons. Um, but then I've learned from people who have tenure, who've been serving their districts for years, uh, that they're also under attack. So we're in a in a state of things right now uh, where even tenure doesn't protect you. Um, and that that's a that's a scary thing to consider. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I know that you've you've talked about this ad nauseum, but we got to unpack the De Anza, the De Anza drama a little bit here um, and, and let our people listening who may haven't haven't maybe seen this story so far with you. Um, and it's, it's crazy how much your story blew up. I mean, you were on Tucker, like, I don't think it gets RIP to his show on Fox, but you were there right at the end. One of his last, uh, one of his last episodes, I guess it turned out. Um, and you know, you've been interviewed by a bunch of people published, you know, your story has been published. I see people tweeting, like, tweeted about your story. Um, that never really knew anything about FBT. Um, it's not like they had an inside scoop or anything. That's how much, how big the story got um, across the media. But what, what happened? Where did you start to, I guess, piss people off? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I, in terms of that um, and, and what took place at De Anza, um, there's a, Basically, my first my my first weeks in at De Anza College, um, the 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 red flags, the warning signs, kind of popped up immediately. Um, but, it happened very quickly. Yes, yes, immediately. Um, and this was in respect to um, you know I was working as I mentioned as a faculty director for the Office of Equity, Social Justice, and Multicultural Education. Literally, um, so like my second week in. Um, so I told you before, I take an inquiry approach. So um, that means I'm never assuming anything about an environment or that I have solutions. Like I want to see what people on the ground tell me and craft, um, you know, ways of approaching and advancing together as a collaboration. So I started off with doing what are called needs assessment conversations, where I, where I literally opened my 
uh, office door, if you will, my virtual office door. We were all virtual at that time. Um, and said, you know, here's my calendar. Reserve a time with me. I'm new here. I would like to have a conversation with you about my office, about uh, your perceptions of it, and what we need to do to make transformative work happen here on campus. So I literally did over 60 hours of these needs assessment conversations. And with, I, with other staff or with students or a mix? Yes, with staff and faculty and senior leadership. Okay. Um, because that's who I was charged with, you know, right. primarily working with. Um, and this was a, uh, it was, it, it was a pretty broad stroke. I don't think I would have been able to do that many hours if we weren't in a online, you know, um, situation. Uh, if I was having to walk to each person's office or put flyers, it wouldn't have had that. I wouldn't be able to talk to that many folks. One of the first people I talked to was one of the people assigned to my office, uh, one of the staff members. Um, and they were the, one of the first to sign up. Um, and when we had that meeting, um, they told me uh, that they were heartbroken um, that I had been selected for this position. They told me that they were a finalist as well. Mm. Um, and they said, you know, I don't know who you are or what you are, but I've been here doing the work all these years. Um, I was a student here. I've been raised up through here, mentored through here. Um, this is my area. I've developed things around it. And I should have been selected for this position. I don't know why they selected you um, or if you're even down with the work. And I mm. said, well, you know, I, I don't know you either, you know, but I'm not making any prejudgments about you. And I hope you'll do the same for me um, and, you know, uh, that we can work together. And I shared with them my heartbreak that I had recently experienced, because as I mentioned before this position, literally, like it was fresh for me. I had had that situation where I had a temporary tenure track um, faculty position, my first one. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was going to, you know, become a tenure track permanent position, but it didn't. Uh, the budgets didn't work out. So I would, I was like, when that happened, I was like, because oh. I had done a portfolio and it, like everything a tenure track person would do. <laughs> Once again, I had done all of it, you know, but then I, then the position, uh, the, the permanent position didn't materialize. So that's how I even ended up applying, you know, for this. So I shared that with them. And I said, you know, I know it's hard. I said, believe me, I've put out hundreds of apps before this, worked as an adjunct for years. I told them my story as well. And I, and I said, I hope we can work together you know, um, it's my intention for to be very collaborative, communicative. And at the end of the conversation, they ended up just basically telling me um, that, you know, <laughs> this should have been mine and you're going to have a rough ride ahead of you. Uh. And that was how the conversation ended. So and then shortly after that, that same person began to literally attack me um, and and to, um, you know, tell other people that um, they, 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 they didn't think I was down with it. Uh, they, they don't know anything about me. The same things they told me to in our one-to-one -one was then told to other people. And I know that, Connie, because other people came back to me and were like, hey, you know, like I just met you, but this person's saying that. Like it was like gossiping um, and, and undermining. Um, so like what did what did they mean when they said she's not down? Like what, what were they were? Because when I hear that, a lot of the times I think it's someone accusing a black person of not being like black enough. Um, but I don't know if that's what that meant here. Like what? Because they didn't really know you either. So I just what does um, that even mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't know. I don't. I, and I can't, you know, um, get inside that person's mind, know what they meant. But I can tell you this. I knew when they were saying it, like when you when I hear that term, like you're not down with it. It means like you're. 
you're fake. Um, you're not really doing quote the work. Um, and what I learned later uh, from other people and from my needs assessment, because I was looking at what have we done in the past as an office. So my office used to do workshops prior to my arrival, like the year before on how to be woke and get paid. Um, and oh. on, you know, other topics like that. Um, and, and I was like, okay, that's interesting. You're like, that's how we're raising people, you know, our students up and, and teaching them how to be in the world. Uh, what is woke? Uh, they were defining it as, you know, like aware of in the injustices, proud of who we are, um, you know, not ever bowing down to anyone, all of these kind of things, but nothing really clear. <laughs> um, and so to to have that same person. So we're kind of mixing two like timelines of events. Uh, Cause I learned that after, um, you know, before um, I was accused of being a um, white speaking and white explaining and a white supremacist. Mm. Um, so th after about three weeks after that initial meeting with the person, I was calling my team meetings and wanting to know how do they work together? And, you know, how, how do they usually meet? Um, do you take notes? Do you have a system for agendas? And I learned that they were very informal, how they described it to me. Uh, they tended to meet weekly. Um, and I knew that we need to do a strategic change. So I was like, okay, well, let's start forming <laughs> like some kind of strategy around how we meet. So we maximize our time uh, because I had just, my calendar was uh, pretty full from the beginning, especially with the needs assessment conversations um, that people were scheduling. Right. And so when I shared that Google Doc, that's when I was uh, told um, that I was... Uh, um, white speaking and white explaining uh, and supporting white supremacy. And in that meeting, uh, when that happened, the person who was saying that was the person who told me, you know, you're going to have a rough ride a couple of weeks earlier. And day. this was, and this was simply because you were just trying to create a little order, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just not even just, just structure. Um, right. Like, and I wanted us to be able to collaborate where, you know, asynchronously. So we didn't have to all be logged in, you know, um, mm -hmm. trying to be respectful of everyone's time. Um, and, you know, it, and, and just, uh, keep a record of what we're doing. Cause if we're, if I'm supposed to lead a strategic, do strategic planning and lead us a, a systematic change, I can't just do it through informal conversations, you right. know, and chatting with people like, which is, that's great. And so we had a couple meetings where that was it, you know, and I realized like, okay, like they're okay with just that continuing to be how we engage all the time, you know, and I'm like, we've got to firm it up. So this was like the third meeting in or so. It wasn't like the first meeting we had, yeah. like putting this structure, you know, no, um, or even suggesting a structure. Um, it was, it was, it was after seeing the informal um, uh, way of doing it for many, for, for, for a couple of meetings and realizing uh, the pool on my time, it was having the pool on their time. And it, are we really being most effective based on what I know about leading transformative change? Um, so when I, when that person said that, I said, you know, Hey, I haven't come in here judging anybody. I said, I've never called anyone a name here, you or anyone. I said, I have respect for ev every person as a person. I said, I really, please don't, you know, use that kind of term to me. I, it felt bad. I, no one had ever called me a white supremacist or told me I was white speaking or white explaining in my whole career. I had never heard those terms, Connie. And some people that in the media and stuff, they're kind of skeptical. They're like, how did you not know that? Like you had to know in, in the places where I work, there was a respect for human dignity, for humans as people. There was a professionalism that um, instructors engaged in, that faculty engaged in, in every institution I've ever worked in prior to this one. Um, that was just how teachers behaved with each other in a professional manner. Even a, a, a teacher that you disagreed with, you would never be calling them a name 
uh, are, you know, acting towards them in an unprofessional way or bullying them, you know, um, there's choices you can make on what groups you serve on in committees, you know, um, so it, it wouldn't be like that. So this was a unique environment uh, because when I said that, you know, you know, please don't call me names and so forth, uh, the group looked like I was offending them. Uh, and then they began to behave that way after as though I had injured the person who said those things to me uh, by saying, don't call me that. Let's just keep it professional. Um, and then when I went to the dean, who you should be able to go to, that's my supervisor. And I said, hey, um, I'm telling you that there's a problem here. Um, there, Someone has said these things to me. I feel very uncomfortable. You know, um, it's highly inappropriate. I told him about where I grew up, what I had experienced, you know, um, in terms of white supremacy. And for someone to call me that, how deeply offensive that was as a black woman. Um, and Truly, I didn't know what they meant until I started going to their workshops and the workshops headed by the dean. Um, and I saw these slides about white supremacy culture that they kept putting up in every workshop. Um, and it said things like being on time, being objective, uh. of the written word. So it's Tim O'Conn's work. Um, and they were holding this up as the Holy Grail. Um, so I, at first, I didn't know what they were meaning. I thought they were literally calling me a white nationalist and a white a white supremacist, you know, mm -hmm. and that was offensive. But then when I saw that, it was even more offensive because because then I was like, what? Like, you're not even using the definition of white supremacy that everybody knows and that we should all be working to, you know, um, make sure that our communities are free from that kind of scourge. Uh, instead, we're talking about something else entirely that I had never heard of. I had to literally come up to speed. I went and read Tema Okun's work. Um, I went to the website, you know, uh, when I, one time they had a citation on it and I immediately, you know, started looking into it because I wanted to understand who are these people? Because when I reported it to my Dean, her affect was flat. Uh, mm -hmm. She said, oh, I'll ask, I'll ask him to apologize to you. That was her solution. And I said, I had asked for, uh, we need someone to come in to talk to in-group, out-group bias um, we need someone to come in to talk about how do we respectfully and in a nonviolent way communicate with each other. Um, and I said, I, I would really appreciate if you did that. I said, normally that would be me. I will be doing it. But in this instance, I'm the person under attack. So I'm not right. positioned to do it, you know. And so I'm going to my supervisor saying, and I told her in those terms, the way I'm telling you, I said, please bring somebody in so that we can learn, you know, how, how do we talk to each other um, and have different perspectives and, and be respectful of one another without name calling. I said that, that you know, we're kind of, this is no, a good way to us for us to start off uh, in terms of we need to collaborate and work together so we can support our students in the school. Um, and that never happened. And the person never apologized to me. Hmm. <laughs> Instead, they like went on a literal campaign um, and they ended up resigning at the end of the year. Um, and it, now they're overseeing the ethnic studies uh, efforts at the, at the college. Uh, which is which is very uh, ironic um, because again those same ideologies that they were using uh, to attack me and to behave with me in, in the way that they did um, and others uh, is is reflected in their approach to ethnic studies, uh, which is a liberated ethnic studies uh, model uh, that they're very proud of. Again, a lot of self righteousness and, and pride and and and. and, and <laughs> Um, you know, a, a lack of intellectual humility um, in general um, that's just allowed to pr proliferate uh, because, you know, nothing's ever done to correct it 
no no supports are bought in to help people to learn to work together um, because there there wasn't an interest in that. It, you know, it, they had labeled me as not down with it, and then like it became a mass labeling. You know, after after that event where I was called a white supremacist and a white speaker and a white slainer in the way, you know, I said, hey, that's that's not okay. Let's not do that. Okay, so you didn't you didn't get the support that you wanted from your supervisor. Things weren't really changing internally with your team, but you kept it pushing. I mean, I you you kept you kept um, you know trying to inform that change, and mm-hmm. so I believe you then put on a couple of programs or events after this that that maybe that was the straw that broke the camel's back. I'm not sure. Um, could you kind of talk us through where? You were putting on events or promoting ideas that folks didn't like, and then eventually your tenure was at risk. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it was immediately at risk. Um, you know, uh, as I told you about my supervisor who served on the com- on the tenure review committee, uh, their lack of response, and 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 um, and then they actually and I asked them to come into my meetings uh, because I I felt that uncomfortable, Connie. I was like. Mm. You know, when you have a meeting where name calling is happening, yeah. it's like, so I said, no, I mean, I said, would you come into the meetings and just uh, serve as a witness, as someone who can help uh, maintain an environment of collegiality, um, you know, as a supervisor, because there's supervisor over all of us. Uh, that was the help I asked for. Instead, this person took over my meetings. Um, mm. They began to set the agenda. Everything was deferred to them. Um, I was being told that I should call this person the heifer. Um, and to me, I was just, when I heard that term, they would all say heifer this, heifer that. I said, what is that? Because when I, where I grew up uh, with my aunties, if they called you a heifer, uh, that was not a positive term in Black vernacular. Like that, that means like a little cow, a right. little B word, you know, uh, to me, it's like a curse word uh, because mm-hmm. that's what my auntie, she would say like, tell that heifer to sit down, you know, right. like, and I'd be like, oh, she's in trouble. So I had only heard it in that term, but like the whole team was calling this person that, and they were using a lot of Spanish words. Um, and I had taught in um, East Los Angeles public middle school. So I knew a little bit of Spanish, but I had never heard some of the words and terms they were using. Um, and, and so I said, you know, Hey, um, some of the terms you're using and things and nicknames and stuff, like what does Heffa mean? I said, cause to me, and I shared with them a video, I said, this is what it means. And I had a video of like breaking it down in black vernacular. I said, so I don't feel comfortable calling the supervisor that I said, I'm just going to call her by her first name. And then that was offensive to them that I wouldn't say. So Heffa means boss lady, the big boss. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I didn't know. I didn't know in in their language and the way they speak, that's what it means. Um, But again, this is an othering. This is an in-group, out-group type of activity uh, where everyone's using a certain language or term that no one else knows, uh, the new team team member. And then me not complying with that. And that that to me, it it spoke to the uh, very gangsterish way that things were run. Um, it's like a mafia (laughs) type vibe or gang type vibe, um, where we're calling people boss lady and, um, and so forth and using language and terms that people don't know. Um, so that was another strike against me internally, um, that I, that I just wanted to call people by their first name and be professional. Right. Um, (laughs) And, and then, um, there was a discussion about, uh, the women, gender and sexuality center and, Uh, This is, again, where I was labeled an outsider. Uh, They were talking about uh, the the coordinator came in and she was talking about some complaints that she had had about the center. And she said that, you know, um, uh, some administrators, she never said who, are claiming that white faculty 
and staff feel uncomfortable coming to the center. And the center's part of my office. It's like a room in it. Um, and so the other team member said, well, what are you going to do? And she was like, well, I'm not going to do nothing. She's like, this isn't a center for them. Uh, this is a center we've made for BIPOC people. BIPOC means uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color. Um, it's centering our voices. That's what it's for. And then all of them chimed in and they were of the same opinion. And unfortunately, Connie, like I, <laughs> some of my friends and colleagues, like they laugh and they say like, Lee, when we go to like faculty meetings, we like to look at you like, because your face, like, you cannot play poker. <laughs> it shows on your face how, like, you're feeling what you're thinking. So, like, you crack us up. So, like, that's a little bit about me. Um, but so we're on the Zoom grid, and I could, uh, I should have turned my camera off, but I didn't. I was on, and they could see that I was looking kind of like, ooh, what? You know, because it was, that was bizarre to me, what they were saying. And so one of the persons said, like, Lee, so what do you think? Like, you've been quiet. And I was quiet, but you could see on my face. <laughs> yeah. And I said, I share with them what I thought. I said, I feel like if this is a public school, sh anything on it should be open to everybody. I said, I feel like it shouldn't matter what your race is or even what your sexuality is. Like if you were curious about a topic, you should be able to go to the Women, Gender, Sexuality Center, whoever you are, however you're racialized, and be able to just check out a book or have a place where no one's going to like, you know, ask you, you know, why are you here? It should be welcoming to all. And I got tore up by that. They were like, what? They're like, it sounds like you're talking about whitewashing our center. It sounds like you're talking about undoing all the progress. You're standing on the shoulders of giants here. And we've done this work for many years. And this is our space. The white people have the rest of the campus. They're not getting our, our, our center. And I was like, okay, well, we're just going to have to agree to disagree on that. Cause I feel like if it's a public school, <laughs> it's open to everybody. And this um, center, you're saying it's, it, it wasn't even about any anything ethnic or racial, right? It was women's and women's gender. Sexuality. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Even more bizarre. Yeah. So, and that, and that's how they wanted to frame it and do it. And so I, so immediately Connie, it was like a recognition that, wow, we're coming from some different ways of thinking about the world and public service and so forth. To me, if you are a public servant, you serve all of the public, not just some of it, not just a group, not a racial or ethnic group. Like you're, everybody should be able to come in there and feel, feel welcome. And so, and that was just my way of seeing it, but they had a very different way that was very obvious and apparent, you know, as these initial discussions uh, revealed. Um, and then I started to reach out to the community, right? Because I want to see what is, what are community partners saying? What are needs with students? And as I'm having these needs assessment conversations, uh, the topics of, uh, A, we all mean different stuff when we're talking about equity, diversity, and inclusion came up. Another one that came up was there's a problem with anti-Semitism here. Uh, and I learned a lot about that from conversations with people. Um, and uh, there's problems with accepting people of different religions and backgrounds. Um, and we only focus on black and white issues. Those are mm -hmm. topics that all came up from faculty, staff, and administrators. Um, and so I started to you know, reach out to community partners. And that's how I became connected with them. Some of our um, Jewish leadership in the community, uh, the Muslim leadership as well, a Sikh, uh, Sikh leadership as well, um, and just just different groups. I'm wanting to hear their perspectives, wanting to hear what their needs were, wanting to hear how can we support the students in the community to really feel welcome um, and like they can be a part of you know the whole learning environment. So. That was something that I um, that I was really uh, focused in on. And as I started to engage the partners, 
um, especially around the anti-Semitism, because that was something that popped up like more than once. And so I said, hey, I need to look into that, you know, um, and people were sharing documents with me and videos and uh, resolutions from our student government. Um, and and I was like, wow, this is, this is a huge issue. Um, and then I brought in partners uh, from the community. I wanted to hear from them. You know, what are the perceptions from the community about supports that our students need? And I brought some of those to Equity Action Council and then wanted to brought it back to my team. Right. And said, let's let's do some work around this. And I and I was told, you know, that's not what we're focused on. We're decentering whiteness. Um, and what you're talking about is not uh, what we're what we're doing. And I was like, wait, how can you say that? Like. Well, how is this not diversity, equity, and inclusion work? And so every team meeting that my, by, at that point that my dean was leading, um, was her and the team saying like, no, we're, we're not doing that. We're not interested in that. We don't need to focus on it. Um, we're focused on decentering whiteness. Okay, so what are we going to do around that? Oh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to do these workshops. Uh, we're going to focus on, you know, how to be woke and get paid, um, you know, and, and so forth. And I was like, this is, this is, uh, what I'm hearing from people is why people don't engage with our office. So we're going to keep doing the same things that I was warned about in my, in my panel um, interviews. You know, they told me my office was a little too woke and, you know, um, accusing people and so forth. Uh, Cause I asked them, what do you mean by that? I always ask people, what are <laughs> define that to me? And they said, it meant that they were accusing people of being racist uh, all the mm -hmm. time and, and telling instructors that, you know, they, they weren't effective instructors because they were engaging in racist practices. That's how the panel defined it. My team had a different definition of what woke was, which was a mm -hmm. positive one. So. So when did you, I guess, when did it all come to a head where you were told or denied your tenure and your time at De Anzo was was over? So this, the first year in, uh, Connie, um <laughs> I uh, was attacked, uh, a mass aggression, um, a group of, of these individuals that support my uh, dean and some of the staff members uh, went to the board of trustees and demanded my immediate termination. Um, and they claimed, uh, they made all these claims that just simply never happened. Um, and they, they were saying that I was making statements like all lives matter and all of these things, which I've never said to anyone anywhere. <laughs> um, and, and they basically just fabricated a bunch of things. And they said that I was elevating groups that shouldn't be elevated. Um, and at that point, the groups that I had, you know, um, established Heritage Months for uh, through my Heritage Month work group um, were groups like the Jewish American community. Uh, the Sikh American community and Arab American um, community and Native American communities. So apparently I wasn't supposed to be elevating those groups. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't supposed to be including them. Um, and, and, and it was, it was terrible. This, this group had a platform of like 15 minutes, just basically slamming me and saying, I shouldn't be equity director. I'm not doing the equity work the way I'm supposed to. Um, and not only that, but in my evaluations, uh, some of the people that were serving on the first committee served as the mentor for the person who attacked mm. me initially. They yeah. were a mentor when they were a student. So what's happening often in these community colleges, you raise a student up through an ideological um, approach, a singular ideological approach. And then you hire that student and you give them money <laughs> to keep advancing that ideological approach. So the investment becomes even more, you're more invested, right? Now that your money stream is connected to that uh industrial complex, if you will, um, that's being developed, the ideological complex. 
Um, and then not only that, then you start to promote them up the ranks. Um, and, you know, eventually some of these people even become like vice presidents of, of instruction um, or, you know, other roles. Uh, that's how we have, you know, people who've never really taught being vice presidents of instruction in some of these places, mm-hmm. uh, rising up from being a, a, a maid or, a, you know, um, a house cleaner for the district. And suddenly you're a vice president of instruction yeah. 20 years later. So the, the, that's there's a lot of nepotism. Um, and, and making sure that, that when it was talking about being down, they were talking about me being down with a neo reconstruction, what I now have a name for the neo reconstructionist ideology is what I call it. Um, and, and that's what they were pointing to and saying, like, you know, this person is not, is not down with that, uh, because I was asking questions. I was asking questions about, you know, um, the academic Senate and restructuring our student governance groups. Uh, giving racialized affinity groups voting rights. I, I was asking questions like, what do we mean when we say we're anti-racist? Um, you know, can you define that for us? Uh, I was asking questions that needed to be asked for us to all be able to be on the same page and serve our students in a transparent and an authentic way where we all understood what we were talking about. Um, and that kind of work is what got me attacked um, by my tenure review committee. I was told I shouldn't be doing such things. Um, I shouldn't be asking questions like like that. Um, I shouldn't be comparing uh, different ways of doing uh, equity work and telling people that there's more than one way to do it. Uh, I was told that that was wrong, um, that it was a da- I was endangering all the progress that had been made. Um, and not only that, that I was misleading people and leading them to danger. Um, I was told to watch who I cite. Um, and, and some of your citations are questionable. One of the uh, people told me they said, and I, and I explained to them, I put my references, everyone I've read who has informed, you know, what I'm looking at. And I read across like the, I read everything. Yeah, yeah. I remember I told you as a kid, that's what I did. So yeah. my reference lists are literally like, I'm, I'm giving people like a map, like, Hey, if you, you, you've heard what I said, you go check these references out yourself and then come to your own opinion. Like that's how I've always kind of done things. Right. So to have someone tell me like, watch who you're citing, you need better representation in it. And you've cited some people who are like really uh, far right. And I'm like, what? Okay. Well, did you see the other, like there's, it makes a piece, it's like a hodgepodge. Like that's what I do, you know? <laughs> so yeah. I, I synthesize like diverse divergent perspectives. And then I'm bringing people together in dialogue to do that even in the learning space. So that's my work. Like, that's how I approach the work, you know, by saying and welcoming and saying it's okay for us to be different and to do this differently. And the way you do it may be way different for me. But guess what? We're both having a positive impact on students in some way. So Mm -hmm. is that okay for us to coexist? Like, that's how I approach things. And that that's my approach I was using. But I was just attacked. The written comments that were in my evaluations were bizarre. So my first year in, Connie, they tried to get me out. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, I, I had like, um, this mix of reviews, uh, some were positive, some were negative and, uh, they went with the negative and held those up. I think I had three positive and two negative the first phase. Um, and then they gave me a recommendation to not continue. And before the recommendation happened, a person actually told me who was on the committee, they said, we're going to be meeting soon. And we are not going to be, uh, the recommendation will be unanimous and we're not, we're, you're not going to be advancing. You've burned bridges. You've um, asked questions that shouldn't be asked. You've alienated people who you shouldn't have alienated. And I was like, okay, how are you telling me before the meeting convenes that I'm going to not be recommended? So I immediately 
filed a grievance, you know, with my union. And I was like, hey, this person's predicting to me that I'm not going to advance. And sure enough, what happened a week later, they gave me that recommendation to, to unanimous not to advance. And I was asking my mentors, what does that mean? They said, look at the handbook, Lee. They were like, I'm just telling you in the history of our college, uh, rarely if you get a unanimous recommendation from faculty, it takes the president or someone else overturning it. And they said that rarely happens because a, a president or a leader, you know, is not going to go against their faculty. Like they're right. like, they're basically telling you you're done for. And so that my mentor advised me, they said, this time you need to file a grievance. Because before that, they were like, Lee, you know, like things were happening. And I was like, hey, I should I say something like this is wrong? And they were like, no, it's going to work out. You know, like you don't want to be a troublemaker. Don't, 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 you know, like start putting things in or complaints. But when that happened, they were like, you need to uh, do a complaint now. So that was the first <laughs> one of the first complaints that I did of saying like, hey, this is wrong. There's something happening. Things are being predicted. And then when it actually happened, that's when I um, actually got involved uh, with a foundation against intolerance and racism. And they came, um, I was so thankful to find them. Um, I had known about them before that. Uh, I was trying to bring them for our union. That's, there's a whole backstory. There's so many parts of this story that it's silly. We're going to have to do a part two. Right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, it it, it just, uh, there was, there was so much going on um, around this and, and, a number of duplicities and, and people just being um, duplicitous in the environment because there's a, it's toxic. It's an environment of fear. Um, people, people have been told, and I was warned like Lee, you know, if you start asking these questions, it's not good. Um, you know, people aren't going to respond to it. Well, some people, um, and that's exactly what happened. You know, I was targeted. Um, I was viewed as undermining because of asking questions and leading people through critical thought um, and dialogue around it. And, you know, that's that's really what happened there. And it's unfortunate because I had started to engage some people who had never been involved with Office of Equity mm-hmm. before. And people were coming out of the woodworks and getting involved and feeling safe and comfortable. Um, and now I'm I'm a little bit of, a, unfortunately, a poster child um, for, you see, we told her what happens and this happened to her, you know, and that's why we just stay away. Um, we go to our classroom. We don't get involved with academic senate or none of it because it's just it is very toxic. And the, the people who who have overtaken the leadership of those bodies, um, they're really trying to push race ideologies, uh, neo reconstructionist race ideologies, um, and they don't want any other perspective shared in the space or anyone saying that there is another perspective. We're telling students about that, uh, and that's what I do with my work. Um, I help people to see multiple perspectives around any given topic, like whatever the topic would be, I would be trying to bring in multiple perspectives and telling people like what resonates with you, like, and what feels best to you. Um, Not ever telling people you should be this or that, or you must believe that. And that, and people wanted me to come in and do that type of work. Um, Some of the key people did, uh, which is unfortunate because even in my interview, I was very transparent about who I am, how I approach things. Um, even my uh, demonstration teaching uh, efforts uh, was focused around that. How do we bring in multiple perspectives? How do we talk to each other? How do we bridge difference? Um, how can we work together even when we're we seem way different from each other? Um, and that and that's 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 been the crux of my work for my whole life, you know. So yeah. it's not like I was hiding and then I popped out or something. And some of these news reports, you know, have 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 tried to mischaracterize things that way, which is so disappointing to me. Uh, one of them 
was talking about how, you know, I'm a co-founder of Free Black Thought and how I came in there, you know, to De Anza uh, trying to shift it to more heterodox thought. I'm like, oh my goodness, that is not what happened. Like I literally found Free Black Thought. This was almost into my second year of this experience. Right, right. Right. So this was after... Um, yeah. And I was so thankful to find the community with Free Black Thought um, and, and folks who helped keep me grounded with all the daily stuff that I've been experiencing at um, De Anza, which is still continuing. I'm not done until June 30th with my contract. Um, I show up every day still um, because I have a duty to do that. And mm-hmm. I'm on the public uh, payroll. And so, you know, I'm, I'm showing up. I'm still doing workshops. Um, and, and the anger and ire came um, when I went beyond the small group of the vocal, you know, neo-reconstructionists, I just started to say, who else wants to work, you know, with me? Because I was iced out very quickly from that group. Uh, they began to literally ignore my communications. Uh, I would I would say, hey, let's collaborate on the workshop. They would ignore it. So I just started to reach broader um, into our part-time faculty, into other staff members, other faculty members who had uh, indicated to me, you know, I'd, I'd be willing to do it, but I'm not going to do it being accused. You know, I'm like, okay, I don't do that. Come work with me. So I collaborated and reached broader than the small group, and that raised their ire. Um, in this last um, evaluation cycle, it was stated that, you know, I, I'm not working with the people I should be working with. Mm. Um, but... <laughs> You know, and, and and the funny thing is, I work with whoever wants to work with me. Right. You know, that's what I do. I collaborate and communicate. So for them to try to add in the extra zinger about does not cooperate and, and likely is never uh, going to improve on it. Like the people who know me and who've worked with me, they're like, Lee, that's like preposterous. Like you are the, <laughs> you communicate and collaborate maybe too much, you know, because like, <laughs> that's, that's what I do, you know, yeah. like I, you can't do any kind of transformative work by yourself. Like, exactly. And you need people who are willing. So I just kept going broader and broader to the willing. I started a Heritage Month work, work group. Um, this is a community-wide group. We have community partners there, students, faculty, and staff members on it. It's open to everyone. So I always like blast the meetings out. I'm like, hey, come if you can. We want your input. And, and that group is the one that's been doing a lot of the work around, you know, our first time ever celebrations of various heritage months, um, our, you know, first initiatives towards different identity recognition days. We made calendars for the school um, because, you know, we really wanted to have a more inclusive academic calendar. Um, they have a longstanding history of a problem with scheduling at De Anza, uh, where they schedule um, beginning of school and other important events on uh, Jewish holidays, high holy holidays. This has been going on for decades. Uh, mm. I thought when I came in, I said, hey, we're going to bring community in. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk to the union because I served on the union's executive council as well. Um, and I and, and I said, we're going to make a change. You know, I'm serving on the council even. So I'm positioned to make a change because everyone would say the, the faculty union decides the calendar. So then I saw the roadblocks and I saw people literally just saying, we can't do it. It's impossible. Uh, We have this program or that program. We've got to start on this day in the coming year. I'm like, no, it is possible. There's other schools on the quarter system who don't do this. (laughs) And I said, "And, and, and and us starting our days on this time, it sends a message to the Jewish community that you're not welcome here. Um, that we don't, our schedule doesn't honor your traditions. We only honor certain, you know, uh, perspective traditions and cultures. And I said, that's, that's wrong. I said, that's, that's a sign in action. So I'm all about like praxis and what happens in action. Like that is an action that you're taking. That's very intentional, 
It's not that you don't know or that you, you're not familiar. Now we've made a calendar for you where we show the dates coming up for many years, right? For all the different religious and ethnic and cultural groups. There's no reason why we shouldn't be able to, you know, have a scheduling program that that is inclusive. Um, but unfortunately, we saw that there, the entrenchment is still there. Uh, even this coming school year, we're going to be starting on a Jewish a high holy holiday. Of course. Um, yeah, the school has uh, received notes from the um, ADL, uh, Anti-Defamation League, has written to them and said, you know, this must cease. Um, myself and others have talked to has talked to people about it. We've offered to brainstorm. We've made tools and resources, and it still persists. Mm -hmm. So the the entrenchment, um, Connie, of of exclusion, of uh, non-authentic inclusion, and all of that, these are all symptoms of a toxic ideology at work. And the toxic ideology is a neo-reconstructionist ideology that I that that's what I call it. Um, it's one that's being allowed to dominate and exclude all other perspectives. And it's not just happening at De Anza. I don't want people to think like, oh, De Anza is a bad place. You know, it's happening throughout our community colleges because the 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 charge for uh, quote anti-racist work without defining what that meant came from the chancellor's office, and then it was accepted by the California wide. Um, academic Senate without question. When people tried to question when it brought to when it was brought to them, they were shouted down on the floor. Uh, they were called racist. They were told to be quiet, let progress advance. You know, this is all after George Floyd. So people really took the emotionality of that experience mm -hmm. and harnessed it to advance these uh, these um, ideologies into the space. And now we're all stuck. Um, we're stuck with, uh, you know, being committed to anti-racism with no one really saying what that means and that they're literally pushing a singular approach to anti-racism um, instead of recognizing that there's many ways to do the work. There was ways before, you know, this most recent wave, uh, there will be ways after it. <laughs> um, and, and we shouldn't all pretend that the past history didn't happen, that there's not multiple ways of engaging in people in this work um, and that there, and, and to suggest that there's only one way um, look what it's doing to, to all of us and the fear it's creating, the intimidation it's creating, uh, the way people literally are acting like ideological gangsters um, from the administrative through the faculty levels on down, um, you know, protecting their turf. Uh, we're not going to let, you know, these other ideas be here. If you're here, you better be quiet um, and let us do what we're doing. If you ask a question, we will destroy your career possibilities. Um, we will invert your uh, evaluation process to attack you ideologically. We'll make statements up about you and how you work and how you live in the world um, to make it look like, you know, you're unfit when in fact, the people who are unfit are the people that are acting in a way that educators should never act. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I can only imagine what they do with their students. I'm so concerned about that. Because if that's how you act with me as a colleague, when that classroom door closes, how are you behaving with your students? If your student raises a hand and it's like, uh, you know, uh, professor, you know, I just had a question, you know, about, about that statistic that you just had. Or I have a question about, you know, how you're saying race is socially constructed. Is there another way to think about it? Like my work has been bringing in those questions and getting them out to students because we need to ask questions and we need to have environments where we're safe to ask questions, where it's okay for a student to have a different perspective. Um, if we're going to start hoisting ideological flags during certain months, we need to do them for all the heritage months, 
what what activist flag are we going to raise in May and you know um, October and November and all the other months that are in <laughs> in in the school year? Are we just raising one flag and telling people they must comply with that as well? Um, any kind of ideological compliance um, efforts and and people you know wearing certain symbols and 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 presenting themselves. At, uh, we used to call it um, showing your colors. You know, in the 90s, we had those movies, uh, colors around gangs and how they behave and the signs and symbols they use. Today, we're seeing that on a larger scale with respect to race ideologies as well as gender ideologies. And to me, a learning environment should not be a place where, where we're seeing that from the leadership. Because what it says, when I see that little um, Black Lives Matter flag in, in your email signature and you're a vice president or you're a dean or you're a president of a college, what that says to me is everyone here better believe and do and act and be in compliance with that Mm -hmm. or else you're not welcome here. Yeah. And when we talk about inclusion and viewpoint diversity, that's chilling. It's like suddenly these things popping up everywhere. uh, They are signals for sure um, that, you know, this is a ground base. This is a base for this sort of thinking. If you think outside of that, or if you question that you're not welcome here as a student, as a worker, as anyone. And to me, that that's, that's, that's problematic. When you're a public serving institution, you should represent all of the public. Um, and we're not seeing that right now in our California community colleges. They've been ideologically captured. Um, people who should be advocating for faculty have laid down literally, um, and they're not advocating. Uh, they're saying this, yeah, we're just, we're on board. We're not going to question. If you question, we're not going to support you. Um, and, and that's, and that's a big problem. That's a big problem for all of our students, for the future of our democratic society, um, for the future of teaching and learning and academic freedom and freedom of expression. Like I, I have so many concerns about that and the experience I've had, um, at De Anza, um, that's why I chose to speak about it. Because my mentor said, like, Lee, if you talk about this, you can say goodbye to any other, you know, tenure track. Like, you are done. Like, you know, it, that you will not get another tenure track position. Um, you'll be basically blacklisted. And I had to weigh that, you know. Like, do I just keep this living hell that I've been through for two years now to myself? Or do I let other people know? And maybe someone else is going through it. And so I had to lean into what I've always taught about moral courage Mm-hmm. Um, and, and telling people not to be a, by, a bystander. Like I heard the voices of my middle school students again, like, you know, hey, that's how I started wearing my hair, hair purple. Um, when I first started teaching, I would wear a wig. I had my hair dyed. I've always been dying at crazy colors. Now everyone does it. I mean, you know, but at that time it was like, what? My teacher has different color, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but one of my students called me out one day. I love middle schoolers. And it, everyone always tells me you have to be special to teach middle school, but they were like, miss, you're always up in here, like telling us, oh, be yourself, be your real self, like be your most authentic self. They're like, why are you always up here wearing a wig? <laughs> one of my and, students like literally said that one day. And because uh, it was peeking out in the back, I didn't know, but it's peeking out. And she's like, I see it right there that you have different color hair under your wig. And I was like, oh, I said, you know what? You just, you really just called me. You, you <laughs> got me on this. And from literally from that, I took it off in the classroom. I said, you're right, I am wearing a wig. I said, I had concerns about, you know, my personal thing. Would I be taken seriously if I'm in teaching? And so they were like, no, we know that you haven't missed. So just wear your hair. So I literally took the wig off. And I, from that day forward, wore my purple hair in my classroom. 
I never wore a wig again. So it, it, it like circled back to that, that thing of like being your authentic self, um, not being afraid of it. If I'm telling people to have moral courage, stand up and so forth, like this is the time to do that. Will I lose some opportunity? Possibly. But what about the people who just by me asking my question or saying that I've asked questions, that might inspire someone else to do it where they are. So it was exactly. like me standing up into who I am. It, it basically helped me recenter myself uh, in a pretty mass way, I guess, um, which I didn't expect anyone would care about. I never expected to be on any shows. I never expected any of that, Connie. Like the, the first interview I went on was Tucker Carlson. Now some people are like criticizing me on that. Of course. Know? And I'm like, what? I'm like, I literally, whoever like re reached out to me, I was like, yes. Yes, because the point was, I wanted to tell what happened to me. So is it a fault with me that only certain types of media have reached out to me? No. Is it a fault with me that only certain wings of the media, now I've learned we have those, I didn't know. I've been talking about media literacy so long, I have to revise my courses for teachers and students because we have wings of the media in America. Um, and if you go on a certain wing, um, then the other wing doesn't want to talk to you. And it's like, what? This is a universal story. So I'm literally willing to talk to anyone. It's just only certain groups and outlets have been willing to talk to me. Only certain groups and outlets seem to be concerned with freedom of expression and academic freedom right now. And what does that say about us as a society? You know, I have mentors who called me up on the phone. They were like, Lee, <laughs> like, what are you doing on Tucker? Like, what is happening? Are we an upside down world? I'm like, yeah, we are. <laughs> we are. <laughs> like when you see me on, you know, certain outlets and media, you know, everything is literally inverted. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I, I really have never played any of the sides, but right now it's like I'm being categorized as a certain thing um, and, and pushed into, you know, only speaking on certain outlets and platforms because that's who want, who cares about these issues right now. Um, and, and I'm not, I'm not afraid to speak to anyone, right? I'll speak to whoever, uh, half the people I've never seen their show before I went on them recently. Right. Um, I never watched those networks. Like I'm not much of a news watcher, you know? So I literally wasn't like researching people and being like, oh no, I'm not going to talk to that person or yes, I'll talk. I was like, yes, yes. Who is it? Okay. Yes. Yes. Whoever wants to talk to me, I am willing to talk to them, not just around this topic, but around any topic. Like, I feel like that's how we learn. That's how we grow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's my mentality, too. And um, I know we're, we're pushing our 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 time goal here, too. So, um, Lee, I just want to quickly take you through the speed round. And then maybe after that, you can say where people can support you and we can close this thing out. How does that sound? That works for me. OK, speed round. Ten questions. First question. Is naming a sports team the Redskins wrong? Um, I'm not much into sports. So uh, I think that would have to deal with the community um, where that sports team is located. Um, I, it, it, a lot of context would have to be a part of that. You know, like where is the team? Who are they representing? What is the community makeup like? Um, uh, you know, that, that would all depend on that. And if a community thought that that was representative of their community. Okay. What is the best part of waking up? <laughs> Folgers in your, no. Um, <laughs> you know, the best part of waking up that I really enjoy is that quiet. Like I like to wake up really early. Um, and I like it when no one else is awake yet. 
when you can literally hear the first bird sounds, you know, outside where it's quiet, um, you know, where you just have a moment to just like sit and, and be in community with nature and silence for a bit before the <laughs> before everything ramps up. Like that's literally my favorite part of, of, of mornings, uh, a really early morning for me before everything gets rolling. What is the biggest issue facing Black America today? Ooh, the biggest issue I would say is um, certain people trying to to use Black people to advance their agendas um, and, you know, to use um, issues that are related to the Black experience to advance their agendas. And sometimes those agendas are very harmful for everybody. Um, it feels like when we talk about certain topics um, that people are really disingenuous about it, like this whole discussion on uh, reparations suddenly now, um, it seems like the driver of that is to promote more racial division um, for people to try to realize, you know, uh, the helter skelter uh, race war uh, vision of, of the world uh, and to promote policies and actions um, that that will lead to that. that. To me, it seems very toxic uh, that we're trying to walk back so much of what we've done and accomplished here in the world and saying that we're doing it on behalf of this group or that group, whether it's Black people um, or whoever the people are, um, utilizing people and groups of people as symbols to, to promote racial strife and division. Should the United States return to the gold standard? The gold standard, <laughs> um, that's something that I'll leave to politicians um, and, and folks that, you know, work in that world. Um, I'm not a politician. I'm just a, a, a humble educator. Um, so I, I will I will defer that, you know, um, to uh, the political and social leaders that are that are out there doing doing the things they do. <laughs> are the best things in life really free? Ooh. That's a so on that <laughs> one. That's a tough one, Connie, because I have I have this feeling. Maybe I'm becoming jaded as I become, you know, older. But I have a feeling that that nothing's really free. Um, that there's always some price uh, to be paid. Now, I don't mean that in a monetary way. It may not be, you know, um, that you're giving someone a payment or something, but. If you're getting something, you're giving something. Um, and, and, and that's just been my experience. Um, and it may be different from other people, but uh, I always tell my students and everyone, you know, even handouts that are given to you where people say, here, just take this. It's, it's for you. Uh, rarely is that the case. There's always something that's expected in return or that you pay for it later somehow, uh, some way. Uh, you exchange something, you barter something, uh, you pay a monetary price, you pay a spiritual price, some kind of uh, um, exchange takes place. In one sentence, what is the biggest misconception about you? <laughs> um, the biggest misconception about me is that I represent any political or social ideology uh, with any sort of fidelity. Do you celebrate Juneteenth? Uh, Juneteenth is something that uh, my family um, has recognized. So uh, I would be remiss if I tried to tell you that my grandmother um, and my great-grandmother um, did not recognize Juneteenth. Uh, they were from Mississippi, um, and we have Mississippi roots. Uh, when we came to Stockton, I remember 
as a youngster, um, some of my, my, my grandfather um, and my great grandfather participating in Juneteenth parades. Um, mm -hmm. So this is not a, a holiday that lots of people have known, um, but in my family, I saw it as a little one. Uh, them, they would do, they would do parades. I remember Juneteenth being part of it. I remember Galilee Baptist Church, um, you know, um, organizing those uh, Juneteenth uh, recognitions and celebrations. So it's very interesting now that this is a federal holiday. But to me, it, it was something that outside of my family, I had never heard other people talking about or celebrating until uh, I would say the past five or six years outside of people from the South um, and who have, you know, ties in, in history there. Um, so that, that, that's what I'll say on that, on that recognition is, is very interesting and surprising to me that it's become a federal holiday. Um, and I think the rationales for that, again, go back to, uh, some of the things that I spoke about earlier. Uh, but I will say that I, I, I have been aware of Juneteenth since I was a youngster, um, coming from my grandmother and great grandmother, um, and great grand. So that's, that's just how, uh, how I've always been aware of that. Who is your favorite movie star? Um, I don't think I have a favorite movie star. <laughs> I'm into music uh, a lot, uh, but not so much into um, into movies. I don't think I who who would be my favorite movie star. I cannot think of um, of someone who I could say is my favorite movie star. I, I really, and I'm, plus I'm terrible with names. So that's probably why I'm just getting reaching a roadblock on that one. You okay. know, I watch movies. I'm one of those people, like I can watch the same movie like over and over. Um, and each time it's like, it's new to me. Like I forget them. So I'm an annoying person to watch movie movies with. Cause you'll be like, Lee, we've watched this like 10 times, <laughs> you know, what's going to, and I'm like, no, what's happening? Like it, it, it stays in a weird part of my memory where I literally forget the movie. So I watch it again. Like it's new. I'm one of those people. Like I could watch something a hundred times. So, but I can't think of a favorite person and that's probably irrelevant. What I just said is probably irrelevant to what you asked. <laughs> no, it's totally fine. There's no wrong answers. Is, is Rachel Dolezal a bad person or misunderstood? Hmm. Okay. Now that's interesting. I, I don't know Rachel Dolezal. I, I really don't. I've never met her. I've never had a conversation with her. What I will say about that situation is I have questions. I have questions about the way we respond to different things um, and why certain things are prohibited and others are not. Like, why is it okay for someone to be transgender, if you want to believe in gender and, and all of those ideologies, but not okay for someone to be transracial, if you want to mm -hmm. believe in race and all of those ideologies? Why is it okay to be one and not the other? That's my question I have about um, Rachel Dolezal in, her, in, in that situation, but I don't know her. I've never had a conversation with her. I only know what the media has said. And as someone who has been in the media recently, what I've seen, Connie, is that the media makes its own narrative. They can have all the facts about a situation. I mean, you can give them oodles of facts, spend hours with them talking about a situation. But when that reporter and their editors get together they can present something that you've never said or done. Events get twisted. Things get literally lied about, mischaracterized. Like that's what I've experienced so far. So I can only empathize with her in terms of the media and how she was literally attacked. Um, and her story 
was represented. I don't know if I ever talked to her. She might tell me it was misrepresented. Our facts were not even, you know, um, accurate. Uh, I've seen the media run with seed stories and just make stuff up from a story that was wrong to start with. Um, so I wonder how much that happened with her. Um, and, and two, I wonder why is it okay for someone to be transgender, if we're going to believe in gender ideologies, or but it's not okay for them to be transracial, if we're going to believe in racial ideologies. Good points. And finally, this is a simple one. Cats or dogs? You know, both. Um, <laughs> you know, this is hard because most of my life, even when I was in LA, like I, I was a cat person, if you will. Like I always had um, cats around me and, it, and just one cat um, usually. Um, but in my adult life, I actually have my first dog <laughs> friend uh, and family member. Um, and she truly is like my, um, if you call them pets or whatever you want to call them, they're family members to me. Um, so I have, you know, um, a rescue uh, dog. Uh, she is a pit bull. Um, I've actually, you know, have family members who say, like, if you have that pit bull at the house, I won't come to your house. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'll be coming to your house then because, you know, she Coco lives here. I'm like, this is her house. So, <laughs> so you know, um, that's why I say that. Uh, it, it, over the years, it's, it's kind of shifted. And um, I've even had a few praying mantises uh, that um, visit me <laughs> every year. So, like, the animal world connection, uh, I find sometimes a lot more solace and great conversation between, you know, my cat, my dog, my praying mantis, you know, the birds that come by to see me. Um, yeah, often. Um, and, and a lot of uh, great companionship and friendship. Um, it, it's, it's just a big part of, of my life and my family life, um, my, my animal family members. Um, I know that may sound weird, but I'm weird. So <laughs> nope, doesn't sound weird. Doesn't sound weird at all. I think it's actually pretty normal today, to be honest. So um, Lee, thank you so much. Do you want to close it out with where people can support you, find you? Yes. Uh, so, you know, I have a lot of community and I'm so thankful for the Free Black Thought team. Uh, you can find me, you know, through searching for Free Black Thought, um, Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, a great uh, support network and system, um, you know, and it has been very good to me, both organizations. Um, so you, it, searching those, uh, you'll find things connected to me. Um, also, uh, I have my website, drtlee.com. You can check that out. Um, I'm not really much of a social media type person. I'm, I'm more like what's happening face to face. Um, so, you know, uh, there are some events where I will be speaking. Um, so you can find out about them on there. And I do have a GoFundMe up um, because, you know, my contract with Deanza is terminated um, as of June 30th. Um, so we're going to be in a little bit of a whirlwind in terms of, you know, just basic day to day health insurance, uh, all of those things that were connected to my role are being uh, taken away from me, um, by the, um, ideological, uh, apparatus, uh, that has pushed me out, uh, through the tenure review process. They couldn't get me to quit or resign because I was committed to being there. So they used that process to literally push me out. Um, they tried the first year, was unsuccessful. They tried this year again, <laughs> and this year they they were successful. So it's been a commitment that's been there since the beginning. Uh, I'm just thankful for the opportunity I had to do the work that I um, have done and to build the community partnerships and the friendships that I have with people there. 
Um, I'm still fighting for my position, Connie. So I'm going through the union um, and and doing their process. But as I mentioned, there there hasn't been much support um, yeah. in terms of that, unfortunately. Um, and and that's a deep disappointment for me as a lifelong educator, someone who's always involved with my union, uh, just to see um, the lack of support um, from from that body in particular uh, in terms of my my rights and my right to fair evaluations, uh, my right to not be misrepresented and you know um, mischaracterized. Um, and to have all the evidence I've submitted about my performance, you know, considered by folks. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at. Um, and moving forward, I, I, a lot of people have reached out to me. There's a lot of organizations who are concerned with issues of academic freedom, freedom of speech, um, and also just teaching and learning and how do we become better teachers. So you'll see me around uh, in those roles and speaking with groups and organizations, uh, civic education now that folks have found out that I'm involved with that, you know, I have some of, of those organizations reaching out as well. So I definitely won't be disappearing. I, I, I won't be silenced, thankfully. Uh, I'm so thankful for the public. Uh, the response from the public has been amazing. Um, and the support from people, people donating to my fundraiser, people just writing me and saying like, Lee, thank you. Like you encouraged me to speak up. Uh, you showed me about race ideologies and, you know, Dr. Sheena Mason's work for the first time and Carlos Hoyt and, you know, and all these people I hadn't heard of. And I'm like, me too, me too. That's why I'm sharing them. You know, like that's how I've, that's how I exist in the world. Like I find interesting things and I don't like to hoard them or keep them to myself. I'm like, I want to share this with everyone and have us all, you know, go through this questioning process and, and thinking about and broadening our horizons. Like to me, that's what human life is about. Like ever growing, ever uh, learning um, and, and, and learning from one another and, and having that intellectual humility to know like, hey, we don't have all the answers. We can't possibly have all the answers, but maybe by talking to each other and you know, really listening to one another, we can learn some things that will help us all to have a world um, that we're all just happy to, to live in and where we all feel included in it. Absolutely. Lee, you are a warrior. You have courage. You're an inspiration to me and so many others, like you already said. Thank you so much for coming on and I'll, I'll see you at the next FBT Zoom call. Awesome. Thank you. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast. Free.